Are you looking to hear the insider stories in government business? That intel that will help you win and help you keep winning. Then you're in the right place. We've got the insider stories, aka the tea. This is Afternoon Tea, and I'm your host, Teresa Holder. This afternoon, Lisa Tompkins-Brown is joining us. Lisa has 30 years of experience across the healthcare spectrum, including over 25 years supporting the federal government in many areas of national significance and over 15 years in large-scale acquisitions. She currently serves as the Vice President of Strategy and Growth for Tenacity Solutions, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. Prior to Tenacity, Lisa served as a senior principal at the MITRE Corporation, where she built and led projects in support of CMS, FDA, VA, and other government agencies. At CMS, Ms. Brown served as a trusted advisor, helping to facilitate numerous interviews, focus groups, and large forums, which ultimately served as the foundation for the CMS affinity groups. Lisa also worked at Northrop Grumman, supporting TMA, now the Defense Health Agency, in electronic health record development and data standardization, and at the Standard Technology supporting the Army Medical Department and the TMA Uniform Business Office. Lisa served as an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, leading the healthcare enterprise and health informatics. Lisa is on the board of directors at the George Washington University Hospital Women's Board, Incorporated, where she is also a two-time president and led the board's incorporation status. Lisa is the first healthcare winner for the March of Dimes Heroines of Washington program and currently serves on the Selections Committee. She has presented at numerous conferences locally, nationally, and internationally. The United States Navy awarded Lisa as an honorary ensign in the Medical Service Corps, an honor rarely given to civilians. Lisa currently resides in Ashton, Maryland with her husband, U.S. Navy Re- Captain Retired, Gabriel Brown, her 91-year-old mother, and their six-year-old boxer. Lisa has a bonus son in Los Angeles, California, and a bonus daughter in Orlando, Florida. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. All right. So Lisa, share with us a little bit. You've had an exceptionally diverse career, having worked in industry and academia, mostly supporting healthcare, but also providing guidance and support of hundreds of billions of dollars in federal procurement. What is one misconception and or area that companies miss when responding to RFIs or RFPs? That's a great uh, question to start with. And it's kind of interesting. There's many misconceptions, <laughs> but I would say probably the top one that I can think of is not providing a specific approach or they just regurgitate what the RFP is saying back to the government. Well, guess what? The government read the RFP. They wrote it. They know what's in it. Another thought is that when industry is providing responses to RFPs, they often just provide marketing material to say how great they are. And so the government really needs to see and understand your specific technical approaches of how you, your organization will perform the task that's detailed in the RFP. So it's very important to describe the what you're going to do. And it's even more important to describe the how you're going to do it. Please do not leave it to a source selection government panel to say, They aren't saying anything because they will if you're just marketing or just repeating what they have already said to you. Um, One other thing I just want to add, you know, when you're thinking about responding for an RFP, well, at Tenacity, we like to say surprises are for birthdays. And so (laughs) what I mean by that is that um, your capture team, your BD team, you know, they should be doing all their, their research, their own market research, their government research ahead of time and really communicating actively with the proposal team. Now, if you're a small business like 
We are tenacity. Um, in my case, I am a BD capture proposal operations, whatever's needed. Um, so I, I talk to myself readily. Uh, but still, you must apply that due diligence in the research and understanding what the government agency is asking for. Really try to learn that and do your homework, do your research, find out what's innovative, not just within your organization, but what's innovative. Just just Google it, find out, talk to other people, collaborate, and don't shy away, though, from those unicorn opportunities that may pop up. And so I'm just going to say back to you because it sounds like the level of importance from a compliance matrix, just to, hey, the government asked for X, Y, Z. Did we tell them X, Y, Z? And the government has said, hey, we need a solution that does this, but don't come back and say we're giving you a solution that does that because we think it's better without having pre-vetted it from a customer perspective or from, you know, technology application perspective, right? Absolutely. So sometimes, you know, companies will have great ideas and want to have innovation and influence, but it depends. Sometimes the government just needs what it asks for. There are opportunities for innovation, certainly in any project or program, but sometimes you want to add that to your response to an RFP. Sometimes you want to win and get in there and then start socializing new ideas and new ways of thinking. You can also do that with the way you respond to your proposal. But you want to be just very careful that you don't just look for the shiny object and forget to answer the mail. What is the government asking for? What do they need? Absolutely. And so given the level of experience that you have on the acquisition side, um, can you describe what a typical acquisition lifecycle looks like on the government side? Are there areas of engagement that industry and or government can lean into in order to improve on that collaboration. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So overall, the acquisition lifecycle has about 20 distinctive concrete steps. Um, now, certainly this will still vary by agency, by center, department, and even among contracting officers. But in general, a program office will start with a need, a requirement, and they go through a series of internal approvals to engagement with their contracting office, possibly even like their small business office and possibly others. And the agency should conduct market research, um, whether it's through an RFI or other methods before moving out to develop their statement of objectives or performance work statement and the entire solicitation or RFP. So there might be industry days, opportunities for engagement and collaboration with, with industry, or there may be other forms of engagement, whether it's conferences or, or other um, venues. And that engagement is important because it can help to strengthen the RFP and help to mature it. Um, so there's a lot to consider from the government side when creating an RFP. So you, they really have a lot on their plate. When you think about it, they have to think about the objectives, the alignment to their organizational strategic goals, but they also must consider the actual requirements, the business size, the appropriate vehicle type, you know, whether they're going to use an IDIQ or it's an existing IDIQ or they need a new IDIQ or let's say a standalone contract. They have to create the IGCE or the independent government cost estimate. They also have to identify source selection panel members that have no apparent or real conflict of interest. They have to have subject matter experts also with the panel to help evaluate the proposals. And there's, there's many different steps. And so through this, um, a lot of people I know, including me, get a little upset when we see an RFP that has a lot of inconsistencies or ambiguity in it. 
But industry should know in, in the vast majority of cases, the government's trying to do the right thing and trying to put out a good product. A lot of times they start two years in advance or even as soon as one contract gets awarded. Ideally, as soon as contract administration starts, they should also be planning for the future, whether it's a follow on contract, a new contract or something else. And so with that, if you think that, all right, we're planning today for something that's going to be issued in 2027. Well, a lot's going to change between now and 2027. So we want to give the government a little bit of grace to create something that is fully thought out, comprehensive, smart thinking, innovative. But at the same time, they have to leave some room for what the future will bring, whether it's internal changes to the organization or whether it's in the environment, you know, and what society is doing and what the needs of the country are, you know, in the future. Um, but in terms of collaboration, it is really important, especially for companies to collaborate with each other, even their competitors, but also to collaborate with the government whenever that is possible. So can I lean back in just to one of those one question I would ask you from your perspective in that life cycle process? Let's just pretend like I'm company. Actually, let's just pretend like I'm tenacity <laughs> and so I'm tenacity. The government puts out a requirement and says, Hey, we have this requirement and tenacity has an amazing solution. That's way better than what the government is asking for in that cycle of procurement. When's the best time to go back and say in a white paper or what, however that methodology is back to the government. Hey, we have XYZ solution and it's less expensive than everything else in the world. What's the best timeline in that? Is it as soon as possible? Is it, you know, once an RFI is released, what's the best timeline? And and how do you kind of communicate that? So that that's an interesting question also, because the one thing I think all companies would want to stay away from is giving the government a great idea. And then they regurgitate your idea in the RFP exactly as you presented it. Um, so I think part of that depends on your level of engagement with the government program area or program office and whether you have a routine engagement and if you're sharing ideas, certainly um, to help the government be more cost effective, uh, more innovative, um, to develop better quality solutions, then it might be best to go ahead and engage and share some ideas early on. A lot of that will depend on your partnership or relationship with the government. Additionally, responding to an RFI certainly makes good sense. Um, I think that when you're talking about innovation or cost savings, you want to be as specific as possible. But I would say that there most in most cases um, for some of those really what what I call sweet nuggets um, or your, your sweet spots that you have some really creative ideas. You may just want to wait until it's time to provide the proposal just to avoid your great ideas showing up in the um, agreed upon approach from the government's perspective so that others won't also take your idea and, and just work through your ideas. Got it. Excellent. Excellent advice. You don't want that secret sauce with everyone having the same flavor. <laughs> like, oh, I see. They want human-centered design. Let's all write to human-centered design now. <laughs> um, one question I was going to ask you, can you describe a little bit of what source selection means? Because sometimes on the industry side, especially if you're new to the industry, the word source selection is like the mysterious, what is that? Um, so can you describe a little bit of what source selection is and sort of how it gets done and all that good stuff? 
Sure. And it's funny you ask that particular question because I remember I was working on one project and the project, we were going to have a gap in service. And so I was looking for another project and my boss at the time, he said, um, Oh, Lisa, we have this really cool project. You can help for the summer and you know, you're going to be doing source selection and helping the government, you know, using this, this um, numeric way of assessing proposals. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Right. This was much earlier in my career, but I was like source selection. But he was such a good guy and very cool. And I needed a project. So I said, OK, sounds good. And I remember working that weekend, all weekend, Fourth of July, learning about source selection. So when the government, uh, the program areas and partnership, of course, with the contracting officer and contract specialist, they are doing what is called source selection, meaning they have a panel of experts um, that panel could be three members, five members, or more, depending on the complexity and the size of the opportunity. And this panel will review proposals. They will evaluate proposals not against each other, but against the criteria that they have presented in the RFP, or request for proposal. It's very easy to let our human side kind of uh, creep into the source selection approach and think, oh, this this offer says this, and that offer says that, but they cannot do that. They can only evaluate a proposal against the criteria they have identified and published in the request for proposal, in the evaluation criteria, how offers will be evaluated. And so this panel will meet. Um, in many cases, the panel members are not disclosed, uh, but they do have to uh, make certain that they have no real or apparent conflicts of interest. So, for example, if someone is selected for a source selection panel, um, they work for the government in a certain program area. Maybe they are a bio- biostatistician, so they're that they're bringing that level of expertise to the table. Um, but then they find out when the proposals come in that their spouse's company is also bidding for this work, proposing for this work then they may need to recuse recuse themselves because there is a conflict of interest there. And so the government tries to be very careful about selecting source selection panel members. They provide guidance. Contract officers are very good at providing good guidance to how to evaluate a proposal. Um, Oftentimes, you would think if it's a 200-page proposal, it might be very easy for them to just hunt and peck for a word just to see if that word exists in the proposal. But they really should read a proposal cover to cover. And what I would recommend is they read it all the way through after reading the RFP, read it all the way through, and then go section by section as needed against the evaluation criteria. Some source selection panels um, are meeting every single day of the week. Some have to meet weekends, some nights. Many of them, unfortunately, have to keep their day jobs or regular responsibilities and still serve on a panel. And they also have to make sure that they document their evidence of what they have seen, read, and understood in a proposal. So it's not just a matter of saying, yes, this company did it and keep moving. Oftentimes, what contracting officers want to see is the evidence. Where was this found? Give an example of how they showed innovation if innovation is one of those criteria that they must meet. Um, now, that's for, of course, the technical or the narrative proposal. You also have the individuals that will be reviewing the cost or business proposal or volume as well. 
Be sure to join us next week for part two as we continue our conversation with Lisa Tompkins-Brown, Vice President of Strategy and Growth for Tenacity Solutions. Thank you for joining us for Afternoon Tea, a Federal Health IT production. If you have questions, input, or suggestions for upcoming shows, email us at afternoontea at g2exchange.com. I'm your host, Teresa Holder. Teresa Holder.